Thank you for tuning in to the Starkey Multifamily Meetup. I have with me Michael Blanc today. Uh, Michael is one of uh, the highest regarded uh, educators in the field of multifamily. Uh, and he has a deal analyzer that we're here to discuss some of the reasons and the values from it. So Michael, thanks for giving some time and come on the show. Reed, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, awesome. Um, so we were just talking, you know, throw it out there. We had a great conference um, back a couple weeks ago uh, in Dallas. And, uh, you know, if anybody is interested in, in anything multifamily, I strongly suggest going out to the Dealmaker Live next year. I will certainly be there and, and I'm sure many other great investors will be there. So thanks for putting that on. Yeah, man. So what, the main question I wanted to talk about is you see a lot of confusion, I think, with people trying to get into this. And the, the biggest question is, why do I need an analyzer? You know, I, I just do the NOI over cap rate and there's my offer. Um, so I beg to differ that it's a little bit more confusing than that. But let's hear your thoughts on, on why you would need to take a, a step further and do a full analyst of the property. But let me just say that when I first got started with analyzing apartment buildings, it was in 2006 and seven. It took me four hours to answer the question, how much should I offer and why? And it was for two reasons. One is I didn't have the technique or nor the tools that we have today. But uh, the, the technique is one thing, and I call it a 10-minute offer. And that does simply just use NOI, rules of thumb, price, and cap rate to basically take a, an, an owner, uh, a, a seller, a listing broker's marketing package and essentially use it against them. So you don't actually need a huge analyzer for that first kind of offer. What I was doing is that I was, I was basically itemizing the expenses. I was going online researching. I was making phone calls and I'm really trying to hone this in. And then I would make my offer. I say, well, this, the asking price doesn't work. Here's what it would. And then the guy would just like, fall off laughing off his chair because I had underbid him so much. And here I am wasting four hours of my life on this thing when I wasn't even in the ballpark. So I don't, we don't do that anymore. We teach a 10 minute offer. And we do in fact, just use those, those variables you're talking about. Uh, but once you are invited to make an offer, so, so, so let's say you do this 10 minute offer and you're saying, and you're asking is, you know, your expenses are understated, your incomes are overstated. And so the value isn't, isn't there. But if they say, Hey, look, why don't you put something in writing at that point, you do have to sharpen your pencil. And that's when an analysis tool is super helpful because what you have to do is you have to create a, a financial projection or pro forma five or 10 years because you have to predict or try to predict the income stream because as you know, commercial real estate is valued based on the income it does, it, it has. So if I have a purchase price, I need to be able to say, well, what, what does my income stream have to be from a cash on cash perspective? What is my cash on cash? And when I sell this thing, what is my resale price? And based on all those, those, those caches, maybe there's a refinance in there and a sale, what then now is my overall return? And that's a pretty complicated uh, question to answer quickly. And that's what the syndicated deal analyzer does. It answers that question very quickly. It answers the question, what's the cash on cash? What's the average annual return? What's the IRR? And in our world, which is typical where we have investors, it answers that questions, not just for ourselves, but it answers for the investors. And that's what drives the deal. So you have to answer that same question, not so much for yourself, but you have to answer that for the investors. And that's when you need something like the syndicated deal analyzer. So there's uh, so you're saying there's actually a couple steps. Um, so the first step, you're going to get to a number that's in the ballpark and talking with the broker and then wait for him to say, yes, go ahead and write an LOI. And then you say, okay, well, I'll, let me go back and sharpen my pencil. 
then you then you go and use the SDA, then you get the LOI, and then hopefully go to a uh, purchase and sale agreement from there. So, um, is, is that accurate with what you're saying? That's right. Okay. So, so let's say we've gotten to the SDA and we're we're ready to sharpen our pencil. What are the biggest mistakes you see uh, some of your students and users making? I mean, it gets it depends a little bit on what level you are. There are there are there are analysis mistakes people make, and then there are assumption mistakes that people make. Uh, the analysis mistakes are made when people don't really know how to compl complete the, mo the model. They leave things out um, and uh, their our assumptions are just, just wrong or they make stuff up. So in other words, you can have a really solid financial uh, assumption model, but your assumptions behind it are, are just not grounded in anything. But things that we, we see you know, a lot is, for example, uh, we see real estate taxes that are at the same of where they were in the previous 12 months. Well, in many jurisdictions, when you buy a property, the taxes get reassessed at the sales price. Well, if the previous owner bought something a million dollars, you're buying at 2 million. Well, those taxes are most likely going to double. And so we see a lot of people just put in their trailing 12 taxes, which typically works well with almost any other expense. And, uh, and that does not serve you. Uh, other things is, is not paying attention to certain rules of thumb. So, Typically, when you get a pro forma or a T12 from, from one, the expenses are almost always understated and the income almost always overstated. So applying some BS rules, I would say, to some of these numbers. And so we have some rules of thumbs. For example, when the income is we use a 10% economic vacancy factor. Well, the marketing package might show 5% economic vacancy and you just, just throw it out. You're like, hey, this is great. But you know what? The reality is going to be more like 10%. Uh, because there's not just going to be unpaid rent, but there's going to be lost to lease, concessions, and other things that are going to make up that difference. On the expense side, they're almost always understated. So and we use a rule of thumb where it's 50 to 55% are the expenses of the actual income. And a lot of these financials you get are just lower. They're like 38% or 42%. And so really applying rules of thumb to some of those expenses that, that we get. So we are at least in the ballpark when we do this analysis. So those are some of the some some of the mistakes that we see on the on the um, on the underwriting itself. We also see very aggressive assumptions around rent growth. For example, hey, this is going to be a value add deal. I think we can push rents by a hundred dollars, and maybe you can, uh, but not in the first year. You can't. It might take you two to three years to actually achieve those rents for every single unit, because if you're doing a heavy value add, you're gonna have you're gonna have to turn the unit over. Well, that means it's gonna be a vacancy there. How long is that gonna take. It's, it might take a week, uh, a month. It might two two months, three months. There's going to be a vacancy factor there. So you can't actually, when I see a rent bump of $100 uh, um, in the first year, it's like, well, yeah, that's just not going not gonna to work. So that's the, kind of the first, uh, the first set of mistakes that, that I see. Do you see any other mistakes that you're dealing with this a lot? Um, well, yeah. So there's a ton. I mean, the, you've talked about it before. Um, you know, the exit cap uh, is a big one. Um, you know, some of the Income and expenses, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but um, so you've got, you're not properly getting the right um, financing terms and percentages, you know, uh, knowing what your exit is strategy is going to be, the full assumption. So, you know, they, the market rate might be, let's say $800 and you're at 500. You know, I see not only just doing it the first year, but are you going to get that full 800? Why? 
why is yours much under two, three hundred dollars under the the rent? Um, so those are some of the bigger ones that I see. Yeah, and, and then we get into the, the second class of mistakes, which are you, know, you can show me you can show me a fantastically filled out syndicated deal analyzer, and everything is basically looks great. The problem is, what about the assumptions? So the next question we ask, uh, especially when we get a deal and say for the deal desk, and you say this is a great deal. Here's my analyzer, and here's your marketing package. And the first thing we say is we say, hey, Reed, that's great. How, did, you, did you talk to a property manager? Did you get a pro forma from a property manager? And then, uh, you know, typically the answer is, well, no, but I did a rental meter analysis and I, you know, did that and the other thing. And you're like, well, you know, sorry, it's just not good enough. You really need to talk to someone on the ground who knows the market, who can validate or invalidate all your assumptions, uh, all your expense assumptions, all your income assumptions, your rent assumptions, your rent growth assumptions, things of that nature. And typically they have to go back and uh, so they have to prove that they've uh, talked to a proper manager. You talked about the financing terms, had they talked to a lender? Well, we just used kind of rules of thumbs. Well, you know, percentage point here and there is going to make a, a, a violent swing in one rate in the direction. You talked about the cap rates at resale. Well, if we see a cap rate that's equal to what, where they're buying it or most likely under where they're buying it, where is that coming from? Like, why would you assume a cap rate is going to be in five years equal to where it is now, where it's likely going to be higher? We don't know where it's going to be, but it's certainly not going to be lower. Hard to imagine being lower. So these are things where people are, uh, or they don't change a default at all. Like there's a certain default in a spreadsheet. It's 8%, which of course doesn't exist anywhere. So, you know, did you pay attention to that? Because changing the cap rate of resale obviously affects the resale price. And so even a half percent is just a huge swing in one way or another. So these are some of the major levers that people really need to validate, right? So that we get the lender terms, we got the expenses and the income from the property manager. The cap rate is going to be from uh, comp sales comparables, possibly an appraiser, your broker, right? So what are those, what are that, what is those, what's the cap rate in that market? And can I add another half point to that? And then there's other things. Well, they're, they're more of a conservative nature. Are you being conservative in your, in your underwriting? So this is not just underwriting with what is, but you're trying to actually work with a margin for error. So for example, a cap rate that's conservative, that's conservative. If I can add a whole point above that cap of where it is now, that's super conservative. That's really, really good. Are you taking out reserves out of your cash flow, right? The rule of thumb is $300 per unit per year. Are you taking that out of cash flow where it does not even appear in your, in your financial analysis? Because if it doesn't appear, Obviously, your cash on cash return and your returns are way higher than if you were to take that out. Well, that's conservative. What about having enough reserves at closing when you close, right? So I need to raise a certain amount of money to make certain kind of repairs. Well, what about emergency funds? Like, are you going to put another 100K in there somewhere? You don't really know what to do. Are you putting enough reserves in there? Things of that nature. You know, what, kind of, what kind of debt are you putting on? Are you projecting? Are you projecting? Are you doing a cash out refinance? Um, and, and if so... Do you have, do you have a, the, the, the exit fee modeled in, the 1% or 2% to get out of the bridge and in, right? That makes a big difference also. So how conservative are you being in your assumptions? So those are kind of all the things that we see, and you can make mistakes all along, all along the way, but that's kind of our job is to make sure that the numbers, uh, the analysis is correct, the numbers and the assumptions are validated by, by boots on the ground, and number three, you're being conservative. Yeah, I think um, to build on that, you know, I think one of the things I look at it as is it's a, you're telling a story. You know, if you just go by the current cap rate and you plan on running it the same way you would in the, you know, in the Michigan property, you know, and you buy a California property, it's not going to work. Uh, you know, 
but people make tons of money on California properties, but they just run them with a different game plan. So, you know, I think you have to tell the story of how is that property going to perform the whole time you hold it. And instead of worrying about the cap rate, I think like you mentioned earlier, the returns to whatever you're focused on, if it's smaller and it's just you, what are your returns? What do you want to get out of it? Or what are your investor returns? I think that's, that's important. Uh, moving along. So the, when there's a big value add, how do you determine what that is worth to you? So, you know, if, if we go to a property that's maybe breaking even, they're not going to give it to you for free. So we may run that analysis and how do we get to an offer price for, for something that, you know, has more value to add to it. And they're saying that that has value. How do you determine what that's worth? Well, to determine what it's worth is simple because the, the analyzer tells you that, right? So you add a hundred dollars per unit per, per month, per year, it obviously increases your NOI and it tells you very quickly, what is that impact on overall return? The, the bigger question is how real are those numbers, right? So if you're saying, Hey, I do X, Y, Z, I put $4,000 in to this per unit. How, why do I think that I can get a hundred dollars extra on rent? That's really the bigger question. And yes, your property managers can certainly help you with that. But this is something where the business case has to be super clear. In other words, you, you, it, the problem has to be so crystal clear that this property has a certain problem, which let's say is um, it's, there's got some deferred maintenance, the roof looks like crap, you know, parking lot looks like crap, and the, and the units are, haven't been updated in 35 years. Meanwhile, next door, it's the same kind of property, but it was all renovated. It's all shiny, looks like new, and it's getting $125 more in rent. In that particular case, I can say, I, I know if I make my box look exactly like the box next door, it should produce rents equal to what they're producing. And that's a very clear business case. And I like that. What I don't like is I can't clearly comp it. So the business, maybe, the, maybe the building is somewhere on by itself. And there's really nothing else around it. Then there's some kind of dividing line like a, like a river or a road. And on the other hand side, there's another apartment building. It looks totally different and it's maybe 10, 10 years uh, younger and it's getting $125 in rent. Now you're like, wait a minute. If I apply, if I make my box look at that box, am I going to get the rent? I don't know, right? It's a little bit of a gray area and I don't like properties like that because that's how when I, in my house flipping days, that's how I got myself in trouble. Every time I couldn't estimate the, I couldn't comp the after repair value properly, that house would sit and always sell less. Why? Because there's something about that house that Everyone, a buyer knew about, except for me coming in from the outside, mm -hmm. you know, like a drug dealer lives next door. I don't know. Or it's a bad part of town, something. For some reason, I can't comp that house properly. And it's the same thing here. You need a, you need a very clear business case. And the more problems that are layered on top of each other, the better. So for example, if the rent is already low as it stands, for some reason, this happens sometimes is the property manager is not pushing the rents. And it's like 50 bucks under because they're just not, they just want turnover. They don't want to deal with it. They want people to stay there for 10, 15 years. Maybe the thing is already paid off. They don't care. So that's problem number one. We can solve that just by raising rents done without doing anything. Then it doesn't look like the box next door. I can layer that on top of that. Then there's high vacancies, for example. Why are there high vacancies? Well, the guy's just not turning the units over. They're just not rent ready. Why is that? He doesn't care because it's already paid off. He's making like $50,000 a month in income. He's just not pushing the envelope. Well, if I put those things rent ready, unless there's something wrong with the market, I can lease those up, right? So there's one problem after another, after another, and I can, they're very clear in my mind, they're very clear in the property manager's mind, and I can go and solve them. 
So the big advice is I have is in these value add deals is the problem's got to be very clear. And so therefore the solution has to be very clear as well. Okay. So, so then ultimately it bears down to, you want a clear understanding of what it is and it also ultimately is the returns to the investor or yourself that you're looking for. Uh, do you add, so if you have a straight or a performing building, are you, do you have lower expected returns to something that's going to need a bridge loan and heavy renovations? And how do you determine how much more you need for one or the other? It really depends. You have to, you have to test this with your investors, but in general, uh, a heavy value add deal is requires more risk, right? Because there's risk of you not executing on a plan for whatever reason. Uh, the general, they, the, the construction could go over budget, take longer. Your ability to actually turn units over could take longer. You might not be able to get the rents that you projected, right? So there's, there's, there's this risk with these value add deals. So therefore, if I'm going in more, uh, more risk, I as investor want a higher return. Makes a lot of sense. Now, if I'm going into a more stable property, Let's say I'm going to a more stable property, class B, it's newer, it's already nicer, it's maybe in a nicer area or part of town, I might be able to live with a lower return because it's more certain. There's more certain, there's more stability around that. So this is something that you have to educate your investors about, right? You say, hey, I got this super stable class B in a great neighborhood, the returns are gonna be lower, hey, you're gonna get a 8% cash on cash return, but I got this class C over here and the cash on cash is gonna be 10 plus, once we get into it and the investor kind of go, I get that because I, I'm willing to go after the higher returns, but I realize there's a higher risk. So yes, if there's a lower risk deal, then the returns typically tend to be lower as well. Okay. So now let's uh, go. We've got the 10 minute offer. We've put that in. We've been invited to write an LOI and now we're underwriting it. And you talked about going to potential property managers, talking about what they view the property as in the future. Um, we talked about the real estate taxes, which, uh, as you know, can be a very difficult process because there's no straight answer to it. And it's different for every, every place you go, every county, every school district can be different. So how much time do you spend from the time they invite you for an LOI to getting to an actual, here's what I'm writing on an LOI number? This really depends on you and how many times you've done that. Right. So if you're maybe new to the thing, it might take you a half a day. It might take you four hours. You know, that's kind of what I did. But you know, so you're on the website, you're researching the tax assessment laws and you're like, Oh, okay, I get that. Then you're calling your lender. You're, you're on the phone with your property manager for an hour. Uh, then you got to wait because you want a pro forma from them and you want to plug that in. So you're, you're online, you're on the phone. Uh, you're trying to maybe get a, another broker's opinion on the cap rate in the market. Maybe you want to talk to uh, an appraiser, right? So you're putting all this stuff together. So it might take you four to eight hours at that point, but it's okay because at this point, because of your 10 minute offer, you know, they're asking like 2.2 and you came in at 1.9 and the guy didn't like fall off his chair laughing at you. Instead he said, Hey, why don't you put something in writing? Well, now you have the permission to spend some time on that. And so at this point you do want to spend some, some time on it because when you make an LOI, it's got to be pretty solid because what you don't want to do is put an LOI on 1.9 and then between the LOI phase and the contract phase, I don't know, discover other things where like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to come in lower now during my contract, right? That's called retrading and, and that doesn't really look good uh, unless you discover things that you couldn't have reasonably discovered and you, and you discover it between that. But really that LOI, that price should be daggone really solid that's, that you should have also in the, in the contract. 
And, and so you do want to spend some time on that, but it's okay because you now have someone who's interested in the number you put out there. I think I like that um, point, you know, talking about retrading, because I, I think there's a big difference in the single family world and the multifamily world. And, all, and a lot of people who go into the multifamily came from the single family, as, as you and myself both did. Um, but it's somewhat acceptable to, to retrade in single family, you know, because there's so many people playing that game and, and you kind of blend in. But in multifamily, there are not a, you know, a whole hundred thousand different brokers. There's just a handful in each market. And, and you can very quickly lose your reputation and, and make it very difficult for you to get an offer accepted. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you put that out there. Um, so going to fees, how do you, what fees are you adding in on, on the analyzer and how do you feel about each one of where they should be and, and what, what you like about them? I mean, we always go in and uh, we want to put an acquisition fee in. Acquisition fee is typically 3% of the purchase price. And this is something that's paid to the operators or syndicators or sponsors at closing. And this is simply to pay us uh, for all the work having led up to that particular deal, uh, putting it, finding it, putting it together, bringing our investors together. And if you, if you look at how many hours have been spent of you looking at deals, so they get that one deal, you probably have looked and analyzed 100 deals, you probably put an LOI in for 10, you got maybe 200 contract, one didn't work out and you closed one. So you take your acquisition fee and you divide it by the total number of hours worked and you're probably paying yourself minimum wage. And therefore, the acquisition fee is, is, uh, is very well deserved because of all the things you had to do to get to that point. So it's typically 3%. Now, if I underwrite the deal and the returns for the investors are skinny, I may dial my acquisition fee down to get the deal done, right? If, if, if I can put it to 2%, 1%, or possibly even zero, so I can get myself into a deal, and the only thing that's standing between me and this deal and the returns I need from my investors, my acquisition fee, I might just take the daggone fee out in general. So that's one of the things you'll do. The other thing we do do is uh, we have asset management fees in there. There's different ways you can do that. We typically use 1.5% of, of the gross collected rent. So we kind of are on the same page as the property manager. Uh, and for that, it's typically we're, we're covering the overhead or the person or persons who are doing the asset management. Now, in the, in, in the early days, it's going to be you, right? And you, it's, it's all you, the syndicator. But as you grow, what happens is you have to start paying people to do certain things. And so this asset management fee is very important to essentially keep the lights on. As you get bigger, uh, a thousand plus units, the acquisition fees and the asset management fees are actually there to pay everybody. And you as a sponsor is really making only the money on the equity uh, distributions and the back end as well. So it's, it's overall, the asset management fees are very important, as especially allows you to properly manage your portfolio. We didn't cover the, the capital transaction fee. Uh, what do you think of that? Capital transaction fee is something, uh, there's a couple other fees you can put in there. You can have um, a capital transaction fee where you refinance something and you return the principal back, and then you can have a disposition fee at sale. Um, you can also have, in addition to the acquisition fee, you can, you can have a development or a construction fee. So if there's a very big value add, you could say, hey, I'm going to pay myself 3% acquisition fee or 2% acquisition fee, and I'm going to pay myself another two uh, when the, the, the construction has been completed because it's a, it's, a, it's a big milestone. The capital transaction fee could be paid. We don't typically do it, but you could pay it 
when there's a refinance and the capital is returned to the investors. That means that the, or it could be triggered by a return of capital of 100% or 85% or some trigger that basically says, hey, at this point I have eliminated the risk by the investors by returning the principal and I get rewarded for that. And it could be through that. Same thing on a sale. Hey, you know, I, I do a refinance in two years. I return your investor and then we're going we're gonna to hold another eight years. And when I do finally sell it, you know, we're finally out. Everybody's made money and now I get another uh, disposition fee at the end. So those are some of the ways that syndicators can, can get paid. Okay. And then last one on that. So I see a lot of confusion on what a pref is and then, you know, what to set the equity split between the, the GP and, or the general partnership and the limited partnership. So let's uh, hear what your thoughts are on, on that real quick. So the split is determined by the returns for the investor. So if you have a, if a very rich deal, it's possible you can do a 50-50 or 60-40 split to the investors. The biggest thing that's driving that is the returns for the investors. So what is the, what is the target cash on cash? What is the overall average annual return? And how in line is that with what your investors want? So friends and family investors would be just tickle pink with an average annual return of 12%. They're like, Reed, this is the best thing. Where do I sign? Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, this is great. It's a, to achieve a 12% average annual return, I can do a 50-50 split. And everyone's happy. As you get a little more established and you start working with more sophisticated capital, people are no longer happy with a 12% average annual return. They might something higher, 15 or 16%. In order to achieve that, you might have to do an 80-20 split with your investors, right? So that's typically... Uh, what determines that. Now, the, the PREF is, is, uh, is a thing some people do it, some people don't. We don't do it. And the reason I don't like doing it, so first of all, uh, should we talk about what a PREF is or we're pretty clear on what a PREF is? I, I think we should just cover it real quick. Okay. Maybe just a couple. So PREF is almost like a, an interest payment that goes out to the investors first before any kind of equity split is done. So let's say for easy numbers, the preferred return is 10%. So if I'm, if the, all of the investors are investing a hundred thousand, let's say there's four at $25,000 each, then the first 10% of that is paid out first. So the first $10,000 of all cash flow is paid out to the investors first, kind of like an interest payment. Uh, and then whatever's left over is then split based on whatever the equity split is. So it's a 70, 30 or 60, 40, whatever the case may be, whatever's left over is then split what's called pro rata. So that's how that works. And it makes some, some amount of sense. Investors really like it because they kind of get a, you know, not guaranteed, but kind of sort of guaranteed return on their money. And then everything above and beyond that is kind of gravy, right? So in other words, the, the sponsor doesn't really get paid unless they do really well and they're hitting their projections. So the investor loves it. But here's the problem with it, Reed. Uh, obviously, the sponsor doesn't love it that much because what happens is, if for some reason the project doesn't go as planned, and sometimes this happens, sometimes maybe the proper manager doesn't work out, you're struggling making your income, your expenses are high, and then finally you replace that proper manager and things improve. Well, the first 12 to 18 months you're doing that, you might be missing your projections. What happens now, if I have a preferred return, in most cases, if I can't pay, if there's not enough cash flow to pay it out, uh, you enter what's called kind of a deficiency. So you can't pay it out. Well, that's great. It just defers to the next year. So let's say I can let's say I can't pay out anything for some reason first year. Well, that ten percent is now owed and it rolls over to the next year. So now next year I owe twenty percent. So twenty percent of twenty thousand first twenty thousand dollars have to be paid out. But let's say I can only there's only six thousand dollars. It's already improving, but I only have six thousand dollars now. 
uh, I have another deficiency and it rolls over in the third year. So what's happening now is I, as a sponsor, can never catch up. I'm never catching up my deficiency. There's never enough cash flow to catch up. Now, you can solve that by your, your operating agreement by saying, hey, there is no deficiency. You could do that. People with PREF normally don't do that because the investors don't like that either. So you have a sufficiency. Now, if I am an operator and I'm in year three and I'm like, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm never going to make any money until I sell it. Oh, I know. Maybe I'll sell it now. Why wait another two, three years when I said I was going to sell, I'm going to sell it now. So I actually make some money because if I keep holding on to this thing and working for free, I'm not going to make any money. So I guess what? I'm going to sell it now. Well, selling now might not be in the best interest of the investors, but it's in my best interest. So what's the other thing that could happen is if I determine that I'm starting to work for free, no one wants to work for free for too long. I might just let it go. You know, I signed a non-recourse loan. I'm just going to just let it go, you know, and I'll just start over. And I don't try anymore. Why should I bust my butt if I can't make money anymore? So what's happening, as you can tell, is <laughs> a pref actually does not put the sponsor and the investor on the same page. It just doesn't. It, they're really only on the same page if things go as planned. But if things don't go as planned, they, they, they part ways. And I, that's, not, that's not good. So I explained to my investors, hey, here's why we don't do a pref. We don't do a pref because we are not aligned. And I don't want every situation where you and I are not aligned. So in other words, if, if we make money, we all make money. If we don't make money, we don't make money. It's just the way, it's the way it is. And so that's my view on the, on the, on the pref, now that you asked. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that point of view that, um, you know, of aligning, aligning uh, the incentives. You know, and I think that applies to all the fees and, and all the percentages. You really need to think about how it affects yourself and, and your passive investor so that everybody's working towards the same goal. And I, I love that we, uh, we hit that point. So I think that was great information. I think we covered everything I wanted to hit. Is there anything on the SDA that, that we didn't hit that you think would be valuable for somebody listening to to hear? No, I think we, I think we covered it, right? I mean, what it's important is you do need a financial model. Um, you need something. So you can create your own. Uh, this one took quite a long time to create or just buy this one. It's like 130 bucks. And uh, it just simplifies your life. So that's the thing. You, you need a good tool and you, want to, you don't want to spend too much time analyzing it. So where, where can somebody get this if they're looking to get it? Yeah, just go to syndicateddealanalyzer.com or just Google syndicated deal analyzer and you will quickly find it. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how can they get a hold of you, Michael? I'm at themichaelblank.com. That's T-H-E and then Michael, B-L-A-N-K.com. And we have uh, all kinds of free resources. We have a blog. We have a podcast called the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, YouTube channel. And we also have uh, paid programs. We have online courses. We have mentoring programs and, uh, and live events. So anything you can possibly want uh, for apartment buildings, our mission is really to help people become financially free with real estate. And the best way that I have seen work is with apartment buildings. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll end with a quick note, uh, Michael. So you know, my history of real estate, I'm very hesitant of, you know, the quote unquote gurus. You know, there's a lot of them out there that are, that are pitching $20,000 deals for education on how to buy a hundred thousand dollar house. And the, the numbers don't really work out, but people spend the money on it. And uh, so I can say that personally, I'm very hesitant on uh, pursuing anybody selling training. But uh, as you know, I, I'm involved in your training and it's been uh, extremely helpful in the journey. And, uh, you know, I would definitely recommend anybody check out, at least start with the free stuff like the podcast, 
uh, anybody I talk to, the deal analyzer for 130 bucks, I think you said right, 130, is is definitely worth every penny to do it, and uh, I strongly suggest checking them out. So, uh, Michael, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure, and uh, hopefully we can talk soon again. All right, thanks for having me on the show. All right, thank you.